0: This is Spotlight Media, the podcast, and I'm your host, David Flores. On today's show, I have the very distinct pleasure of welcoming Braden Sutton, who is the CEO of one of Western Canada's most history-rich and respected cannabis brands, the BC Bud Co. The company trades on the OTC markets under the symbol BCBCF, and you can find more information about them by visiting their website at thebcbc.com. Now, during our conversation, Braden shares his thoughts on how the BC Budco is carving out a very unique identity for the company in what's become an increasingly competitive market space by leaning fully into a business model that get this, does not include farming and producing their own product, which is a true rarity for any cannabis focused company nowadays. He also explains how the company's decision to adopt and fully embrace a marathon versus sprint model, has helped place them into a position to capitalize on a market sector that has been completely decimated over the last few years and has certainly seen its fair share of casualties. This truly is a wonderful and very informative conversation that I know anyone following the cannabis market sector will not want to miss. So please sit back and enjoy the show. Braden Sutton, CEO of the BC Budco. Great to have you here on the show with us. How are you doing today, sir? I am good, David. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I look forward to chatting a bit about the the BC Budco. Uh, A lot to talk about here. I think the company is incredibly unique, and certainly I'm excited to be able to spotlight uh, you guys here with our viewers and listeners. And so with that in mind... Want to give you an opportunity maybe kick things off with giving us an elevator pitch, if you will, for the BC Budco, just to give folks out there a brief overview of who the company is, what you guys are involved in. Uh, We'll jump into some uh, more in-depth topics later about the heritage of the company, as well as its very unique business model. Um, But if you could just give us an overview, Uh, we're jumping in the elevator, headed to 35th floor. So you've got the floor right now. Awesome. Thank you. Well, yeah, we, we very much are a house
1: of brands. We're a founder-led group, uh, three guys in particular that have been around the space a very long time, commercially going back to the 90s. I was involved in the Canadian medical side back in 2004. Uh, so a self-funded, really qualified group in the space. I hate to say it like that, but we are a, a contract manufacturer model, sort of a licensing model, whereby we enable a uh, We provide our strains to the growers. They grow for us under our protocols. It goes off to process, goes to the province, and then it ships out and we're in about 500 stores with about four different brands right now uh, and about 30 different products covering everything from rosin infused pre-rolls, regular pre-rolls, various bag formats, uh, we have vape carts and soon-to-be beverages as well. And we are in edibles with uh can of beans and can of almonds. So we, we really touch kind of all the value segments, um, guys that have done it before and, and created a lot of really valuable offerings in the space and guys that really know how to get shelf space, earn it, build the trust and really connect with the consumer and have a model that's that's light and nimble and allows us to kind of evolve
0: with this space because it's never a static industry, never has been. Yeah. And that light and nimble model that you referenced, I mean, that really stems from this approach that the company has taken, which I think is a unique approach in that you don't farm uh, the the product itself. Instead, you, you go out, you find who is farming the best and and highest quality products out there and you work with them. So kind of shed some light, if you will, on that unique approach, why the company chose that approach and how you feel it gives the company a potentially unique advantage out there in a growingly competitive market sector right now.
1: Certainly. Yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, great companies to point to Coca-Cola, Red Bull that have used this model to get into new areas essentially find a facility, turn it on the way they want it, provide their protocols, their packaging, all of their processes. So we've essentially taken a model that works really well. Um, in cannabis, people often say, well, where's your grow or where's your store? Failing to understand that there's the agricultural side, of course, there's of course the consumer retail division, soon to be uh, consumption lounges, which will be quite exciting. But in the middle, you do have these brands that, that essentially you know float around from, from retail to retail. They can come out of any facility. no linchpin. There's no way to kind of box them in because we, myself to go back, you know, I I built one of the biggest facilities in North America back in 2013. We knew back then that that bigger, it was a race for big. Um, Ultimately, when there's a few more than a million, like there was about a few million square feet, pardon me, of, of cultivation space already up in Canada, with about you know 38 million Canadians, maybe 10% of them are, are smoking cannabis consumers. So realized early on that it's it's very oversaturated. It's going to be a race to the bottom, you know, wholesale gram rate back then was about $8. We're now like $1.50 to give an example of how extreme the, the price has fallen. So we knew that A, we want to lift up these good producers. We we don't want to see these mom and pop craft guys go away. They need help. Traditionally, the farmers and the licensed producers are not marketers. They don't understand how to get listings. They don't understand uh, media, broadly speaking. They don't understand doing pop-ups in stores and product knowledge sessions in stores. They don't understand connecting with the consumer. So we're kind of a bridge. We thought, well, how do we sort of, again, enable all the really good growers, work well with all the really good retailers and really uplift the space. And again, do it in a way that's a value So We're not putting any redundant offerings on the shelf. We're saying where's the holes, where's the gaps? What's hot in LA Valley, for example? If we're talking about Vancouver, BC, there's usually about a, an eight or ten year lag uh, from the you know LA Valley all the way up the coast. And so ultimately, knowing how to get in front of it, produce and and supply things to people that that are going to go into the store and ask for it by name. Um, and we've been able to do so. It's very important to note that we've done it without the use of paying these data fees. So currently, there is a real issue in the space, not just the oversupply in the back of the product. But these retail stores are saying, hey, there's 200, 250 brands I could buy from. What are you going to do for me? So the producer ends up paying data fees uh, to basically gain access to Intel to buy shelf space. So what happened in the beginning was the big guys came out, big budget, Bay Street and House Street, and all the mania came in and flooded in the money. Everybody had money to spend. They bought shelf space. They didn't earn it. And what we've done is we've earned spot by spot and store by store. So we're really, again, building a brand uh, with with generational cannabis in mind. Like there's really no notable people in Canada at the moment, despite it being a four plus billion dollar legal industry and realistically probably like a 10 billion dollar illegal industry still with the black market. So there's a lot of catalysts in the future from the the point of the black market slowly making its way into the, the legal framework. Um, So just guys that understand really the landscape macro, that understand the consumption side, because it's a very picky consumer. Um, The value has to be there price-wise, which we understand. But, you know, if we can get a brand out um, in, you know, let's say we have one listing uh, at $100,000 a month, like very modest to achieve. You get 30 or 40 of those listings, you've got yourself a pretty good going concern. But in doing so, you're not adding more staff, you're not adding more capex, there's no extra leases, there's no extra distribution. Uh, or logistics from a, from a growing point of view, you're simply procuring that product as you grow. So I'd like to think that we've somewhat hacked the space in Canada. It's not a perfect model, but it
0: does work and it allows us to
1: grow without co- increasing our cost of doing business.
0: Sounds like you guys have cut out the fat. Um, and I think that that's, that's important because just based on my own observations, you know, in following the, the cannabis sector here uh, across North America for the past few years, I've seen companies try to take on a little bit too much. And yes, their intentions were great, but trying to bite off more than you can chew doesn't always end up well. But it seems like you, you, you've taken an approach that is let's run lean and uh, let's you know move methodically versus let's just go out there and grab everything that we can get our hands on. Is that more or less kind of the approach that you have taken? And if so, I really want to drill down into how that creates a unique advantage for the company. Because I think right now with this being such a competitive space, um, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that those in the investment community can take a look at. But I think this is an area that really makes the BC Budco incredibly unique. So I really want to, if we can, just take a little bit more time to dive deeper into the business model and how it really does help set you apart from other companies out there. Totally, and thank you for that. So, so to, to go back again
1: to answer the question, you know, a reason I brought up Supreme, which was the the seven acre facility, about three hundred sixty thousand yeah. square feet, is the trend. What was trending, what was financeable, was big. Bigger is better. Less than a year later, what was trending was purpose built. So then I'm focused on Alberta. Al- Aurora came to be. Aurora created the first purpose built, modest two hundred fifty thousand square feet, not. Not to at all, but back then it went, okay, we need to be purpose-built. Then they quickly realized you can't control the environment. You can't put out this craft made with love, mom, and pop out of these Costco's. It just doesn't work. There's no economies of scale with craft. Once you start to expand out on that, that scale, you can't control quality. So what the industry has done to date, my point being, is that it's been reactive. It's been knee-jerk industry. We need to do this. We know we do this. We need to do this. We need to get into CO2 extraction. We need to get into... You know in free infused live rosin. and like it's always reactionary what josh taylor and myself are doing with this company is we're we're building a business so started out as a private co a very intentional private mm-hmm. co based on on decades of many decades of combined work on the ground in the space and we said okay well who's the best grower okay got them walk in how do we negotiate a program done who are the top 10 stores we like okay let's go tomorrow we go to each store we give them the information we say here's what we can offer um, so we built it truly brick by brick um, as a sustainable business that we can continue to expand on and, and take the model to Alberta. We're now in six provinces, by the way. We'll soon be in, in the U.S., I hope, on a licensing front and then globally. But we have a process where we can say, hey, Mr. Grower, I know you have amazing product. I know you want it to stop there. You just want it bought and you want to know you have a futures contract and somebody's going to come along and, and, and buy your product. Hello, oh, Mr. Retailer. I know that you have people coming in every day saying, what do you recommend? And your bartenders don't know what to recommend. Here's a product that competes with all of these at a dollar less. And here's all the reasons why it's local. You've got me to contact, et cetera. Okay, Chuck. So you've done their job. You've done their job. Now you're bridging the gap and you're making the space a little more navigatable for, pardon me, that's not a word, for those (laughs) two sides of the spectrum.
0: Yeah.
1: We also very intentionally kind of backed this into a, a, a CPC or a PubCo that I had with Mark Lustig. Mark had just sold Origin House uh, for 1.1 billion US to Cresco Labs. We are a mini Origin House because we are not trying to be cute. We're not trying to go and, and buy infrastructure. We're trying to be relevant. We're trying to own things that people ask by name. We're, myself, I'm often cognizant, for example, that in in 1933, they repealed the volstead act prohibition was repealed it was only illegal to, to consume alcohol i think like 12 or 13 years in america but what happened in 1933 was it didn't flip legal it was a decade battle from like the gin joints and the rum runners all the canadian whiskey coming down from canada that didn't go away overnight so the legal guys that came in when when alcohol was repe- or the prohibition was repealed they had a 10 year battle so in canada october 2018 it was legalization we're only four and a half years in um it's unrealistic to think the sector is going to be perfect in 2024 so we know that so so the solution for us was we have this brand that works we have a model that works we're we're relevant in the industry we're continuing to expand and get market share we're helping support the industry we're helping the consumer and now we have a public vessel which we can hopefully go mop up the industry in about a year when the the beautiful brands that that were resilient enough to survive did so and all the original people in the sector have all long but tapped out and all the creditor protection that we've seen this year in Canada, which I know will happen in the US sadly because of 280E and delays that are there. It's it's tragic what's happening because they've in essence, you know, legalized something there, there on a state level like in Nevada where you are, but really made it impossible to do business because you still don't have banking privileges. You still don't have the ability to write off staff. Fortunately in Canada, we don't quite have that, but we still have trouble, you know, you have to explain things to the bank four years later. My point being is that it's still a very broken, fragmented industry. So the guys that are able to navigate it today, as long as they can survive and remain capitalized, I think we'll have an incredible, you know, buyer's market of really solid brands. Cause we can already go buy those facilities for pennies on the dollar. Retail stores are all for sale because they're not making big money. So as Origin House demonstrated, the value is in the brand, is in the middleman, it's in the people that are the conduit of the the connector to make the commerce happen. You know, we're sort of the catalyst of the wheel. Um so we definitely think we're in the right place. I hope that long-winded answer sort of answers your question, but it was a very thought out model with the with the 20-year plan in mind, not the moment. It was survive the moment, navigate it, but build this ship for for who's who's going to be the the big you know liquor brands of of 2027. That's still yet to be decided. So
0: yeah, looking ahead, I think, and how you're going to get from point A to point B, then point C, and so on and so forth, uh, I think is really important here. Uh, there's a common misconception, you know, that I found out there, you know, within particularly in the investment community in the public market space of you know the cannabis sector here, that the sector itself has kind of hit its ceiling, and you know you can understand that. You know, you look at a lot of companies, their values right now. Certainly, I don't think are reflective of the true potential that I think still exists there. But, you know, we talked about some catalysts, you know, that are still left to to potentially happen here. I know here in the United States, the Safe Banking Act could certainly help really kick things off here. We talked about consumption lounges and how those are starting to grow across North America. To anyone out there who is looking at the cannabis space and saying, ah, it's hit its ceiling, doesn't have any room for growth. What would you what would you counter with that?
1: Yeah, I, I look, I'm a, I'm a macro fundamental investor. I, I consider myself to be a value investor. I've been a student of the markets for for now 19 years, hands-on. Read all the books that I can get my hands on. So I understand this sort of pendulum effect in the markets that is true, going back to tulip mania, to dot-com, to real estate, to what we saw with GameStop and AMC. So cannabis experienced an extreme mm-hmm. irrational exuberance. It ex, It experienced mania. Billions of dollars came in. Extreme FOMO caused everyone to want to be a cannabis investor. So what happened, and this I find fascinating, is it brought out more retail, more mom and pop investors than anything else in the history of the stock market ever by a massive margin, more than GameStop and EMC, all of it. Cannabis brought more. They all got absolutely wiped out. So now you have the first wave of people came in, had a horrible experience. It's going to be hard to shake that. Fast forward to today, you have an industry that is generating billions and billions of dollars that's fighting a much bigger black market. But again, it's being chipped away at bit by bit. Take Canada as as an easy, quick example. Uh, It's about 4 billion in legal sales. You had a collective, I would say 6 billion to 8 billion at the peak maybe of the LP market of just the growers in Canada that has shrunk dramatically down to probably in the neighborhood of sub two, maybe one. So that pendulum has gone too far. So you take Canada as a micro market, Canada is probably not that much bigger than Nevada, ironically, which is why I've always loved the, the Nevada market. But again, the point being is that if that plus 10 billion is being consumed illegally still, I think that 10 to 20% of that's gonna leak into the legal market without a doubt. And then consumption will will move up. Further price compression or, or cheaper pot will will also move that up. Further trust, we got to get years away from what Canopy did and Afria and Can Trust, like the big major bankers that that polluted into cannabis. The tourists that raised all the money ended up being frauds. Like the, the the industry was worried about the the growers, the black market, and the only guys that caused any damage and reeked of all of the bad instances were all bankers. So. Yeah. Kind of ironic how that took place. And then the, the, the poor gardeners were like, wow, I, I this is a, a nasty den of thieves. So we, so it was fascinating to say that the, the capital markets intersected with cannabis. It got the funding. It got way too big, too fast. We realized that, whoa, whoa, whoa. Even your daily smoker, I, I often remind people, a daily pot smoker smokes maybe a gram a day, realistically, some two, which is a lot. It's quite a bit. And that's maybe 20 bucks a day. So that's that person's maybe nine, 10% of the population. Okay. Well, it's not a huge number. Again, it's a lot bigger than we're seeing in the legal market because it's not representative with the black market. But I think again, the, the opportunities today to invest back in Anheuser-Busch Bush in 1934, when people are kind of like, well, I can just go next door to the gin joint. It's been there a decade. It's cheaper, it's easier. I like Larry, the bartender. So old habits are hard to break. And I think we're we're still early. I think we're kind of balancing along the bottom. Of the bottom of the space, like MSOS is a perfect example. I wrote in my book a year and a half ago. I said, "Don't buy any MSOS calls yet." We're still probably a year or two away out from any real things happening, which will probably be an election matter. Like they'll probably use that, you know, next year on the Democratic side. But it's there's a reason it hasn't happened yet. And there's things like big pharma and big alcohol, and they push very hard and spend a lot of money to ensure that their market share doesn't get eroded. So. So Canada, if anything, is a great case study, guinea pig, and it's it's working great in a sense that, again, the the overall sales for the industry have actually gone up every single month exponentially without any real um, disruption in terms of legal sales numbers. So I think the the next many quarters look great. I think we're at the end, the bottom of the barrel in terms of ability for companies to finance. So in other words, it's never been harder. Um, most of the existing operators are carrying large amounts of interest-bearing debt, like debenture debt, that'll that'll weigh on their share capital because as they convert, it keeps adding more shares, the stock keeps going down, yet the market cap keeps going up. So it's kind of a perfect storm for a real bottom, which I think we're pretty much in around in the fall. And again, the companies that can navigate, that aren't burning money, that don't have debt, are in a beautiful place, I really do believe
0: I agree. And so on that, uh, can you give us a snapshot of uh, the BC Budcode's financial health situation right now, just to help folks out there understand?
1: Yeah, certainly. Well, we um, I'm very proud to say, you know, as a, I mentioned, we we did go public. So we're a corporate entity because we had a, a vehicle. So we ended up in a situation where we own the majority of the Pubco. Myself, Josh Taylor, Mark Lustig, which is very beneficial and advantageous statistically for shareholders. Been the biggest supporters. We self-funded it. The company doesn't have debt, the company is cash flowing are are all in corporate burn to give examples like sub 40k, 45k, which you will not find another operating cannabis pubco that has a, that doesn't have any leases that for example, the management doesn't even have management agreements. There's no, none of these golden parachute contracts that have plagued the space. There's no RSU issuances or there's no self enrichment going on whatsoever in this vehicle, which has been a real challenge. Uh, we're about 12, 13 months into sales, did about a million bucks in our first year, didn't really lose money. So we're right at that place now, finally, where because it is a lumpy industry, meaning to say that you don't exactly send it to the province, get paid in 10 days. And, and the Ontario store, for example, it's a 60-day net. So so sales now are finally upwards of the 100 k plus monthly. But again, we're, we're demonstrating and proving out a model. We're not trying to buy sales. I think anybody could go and they can buy shelf space. We're trying to create essentially a very sustainable growth pattern in a chart and show people, you know, based on trust and, and history that, you know, we've done this before, we're doing it again. We're not, it's not a race. This is not a Vancouver moment, like, or a a Toronto moment, which is what happened. This is a marathon. And the guys here are here. They're young and they want to make a big mark in the space. So in good financial shape, again, I've stressed that we were self-funded, never really did a retail round. So we've got the future to look forward to, to kind of, expand out the shareholder base. Um, but yeah, the company is in uh, in great shape overall and and hopefully in a position to be able to start to acquire some of the little guys. But what I'm finding just from my position is that even the real gems that are out there, you know, they've all done raises. They have a lot of sort of yeah. shareholder fatigue issues and they all have debt. They all have exorbitant lease rates because they signed back in the mania and they overpaid for their leases. So
0: we're in a good spot in terms of being, you um, contracting out as much as we humanly can at the moment. Yeah, it's a very smart approach. And you mentioned the name Mark Lustig. And I want to take a moment to talk about his involvement here with the company, because I think it says a lot that, you know, he's chosen to to become involved here. He's someone that has been involved, you know, in countless cannabis companies over the years. So talk about what Mark's involvement here with the company means um, and, you know, how you think it might be beneficial here as you continue to Work your way and navigate your way, uh, you know, uh, over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you bringing him up because he—he's uh, a big deal, certainly uh, in my um, mind and others. He's the only guy, in my humble opinion, I've, I've yet to see any other that has a legitimate, real exit—a uh, cradle to the grave, real cannabis company creation. Value creation sold that company for over a billion dollars. His first PubCo, he was also co-founder of Planet Thirteen, probably the best retail store in Vegas. He's the chairman of IMC in Israel, throughout Germany. He's a, a part of Pharmacello through South America, and he's the director of Cresco Labs in the U.S., one of the biggest MSOs. So I say that to say he's probably the biggest name in the space. He's got a phenomenal name. He's an amazing human being, deeply connected, and we are, in essence, his Canadian call option. So the BC Budco is where he's placed his bet. I'm, I'm in essence, his called the Canadian jockey. We've been partners in the space for a long time. I was the guy that went down with him helped build Origin House when it was called CRHC in 2014. So we work well together. He's a, a finance guy, you know, top of the chain, years at Dundee, years in Pharma, and I'm a capital markets, uh, or I'm a, I should say I'm a canvas guy first and foremost, but I understood capital markets from a retail point of view. I was never in the business, I was never a banker, broker, was not around the capital markets. I kind of came in from the outside. So, so I served as his due diligence, kind of his boots on the ground. And he served as that guy that can open any door, uh, you know, present m a opportunities, open up financing opportunities. So we both have, you know, literally million plus in the company. He's highly convicted. He's an insider owner, you know, more than 10% of the company. Um, so he's very much involved. He's an advisor. We speak often. Um, he has the same sort of opinion that, you know, cannabis came out loud and proud way too much. So we knew he, like myself, shifted focus to the U.S., as soon as Canada sort of turned on because it got too too wild too quick and was exactly correct. And now he knows that, okay, now's the time. Now, here we are four and a half years later and now's the time to invest in Canadian cannabis. There's been five years of waste, of of banging yeah. your head against the wall and, and five years leading up to that, if you remember, um, more like 10 years, but it's been 15 years of of practice <laughs> so mark is a seasoned vet he's a pro he's qualified um, he's the money guy i'm the ops guy with josh we have the ultimate brand and product guy with josh taylor who really created the brand in the first place and i think the three of us together i think we're, we're we're pretty well connected in terms of resources and access and trust and you know the ability to to get into conversations in, in cannabis for us is is good and i think that again is Hate to say it, but you know you've got a lot of people in the space that are that just don't have that. Uh, I'll call it just like again a relevance or a, a familiarity. And like any industry, you you, you want to work with people that are qualified. So I'd like to think we're a we're a qualified group, and our our board demonstrates that as well. We've got three independent directors that are um, probably you know among the top three known business slash cannabis people in
0: Canada. So
1: good team to get done what we
0: what we hope to do. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, if we wanted to paint a picture of the the cannabis landscape right now. I think you kind of gave us, you know, a good idea of it. The last 10, 15 years, it was kind of like a, a hurricane blew through, circled back around, came through again one more time. Um, skies are starting to clear up a little bit. Clearly, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of catastrophic damage, you know, all around. But uh, it, it appears, you know, the BC Budco is that, that one of the few buildings that's still standing, so to speak, uh, to use an analogy there. And it's going to present some very unique opportunities. Uh, and so what I want to kind of, you know, give you an opportunity to share with us here is in taking the marathon versus sprint approach, where does the company kind of go from here in terms of navigating a landscape that has been decimated over the past you know few years but that leaves unique opportunities there for the taking how does the company assess opportunities that might be available and understanding which ones are the ones to go after versus you know maybe hey we'll take a pass on this and just keep going you know till we find something else what's the mentality here for the company as as you move forward with your growth strategy
1: yeah, it's it's really multi-pronged. There's really two windows. And, and to be totally frank too, I think, you know, we are, in the grand scheme of things, we are still early, which is why we're not trying to be cute, as I mentioned, we're trying mm-hmm. to just really prove out and survive. So I think one of two things are going to happen. We're going to either get to a place similar to Citizen Stash, we've got about 30 good listings pumping out, you know, decent volume every single month. Valens came along, paid fifty-four million bucks for Citizen Stash just to buy that brand. They then shuttered the facility, sold it for four million bucks that they paid that the company had paid almost twenty-four. So we'll either get to a point in time where one of the largest can't ignore us. And they go, we've got all this backed-up product. These guys have these relevant, basically packages on the shelf. We could essentially backfill and and put our product in their their branding, which is what's happened a lot in through the space. So that's a very real near-term possibility. The second, and what I think we're going to achieve, is really try to be a really, I'll say this humbly, a, a mini Berkshire. And what I mean by that is find the good three to five million a year top line mom and pops that that have done well, that have self-funded, that are maybe at a million EBITDA, buy 10 or 15 of those and have a really, really cool house of brands that will eventually get to dividend places. But focus first and foremost on the, the running of the business, the going concern, and utilizing that that capital markets vessel that we have the PubCo for what it's intended, which is to eventually get our, our share price where our currency is liquid enough and attractive enough to bring somebody in an all stock and then start to just expand on that house of brands. So I think we have probably the best rofer in the business in terms of a menu in front of us of all these options to buy, um, really the right of first refusal and so many good things. But You know, if we go back, use another cheesy quick analogy, if you go back to like the dot-com mania, we were pretty young, but in 99, 98, you know, I was on Ask Jeeves searching on the internet. Like By 2000, it was Yahoo. By 2001, 2002, everyone was on Google. The first two were dead. Then Google goes and buys YouTube, which no one thought, you know, and then social media companies like Facebook are buying AI. So I think what I'm trying to say is that, we had the Ask Jeeves Day. We might even have had the Yahoo Day. I think we're we're slowly going to start to get into like who of the .com, the mania came, the blow off occurred, 99% disappeared. Oracle, Microsoft, Intel, Google, Amazon, Yahoo, they all ascended off into the heavens because they didn't make stupid decisions during the mania. They didn't right. blow their brains out. So we're post mania, we're qualified we're building brick by brick, and and my my sorry my very I know it's a very long answer again, but ultimately there's some amazing uh, call it picks and shovels businesses that we're already in negotiation with that are very much um, exposed to this industry. With one, for example, has 200 LP clients that doesn't touch the plant. So there's some really cool cash flowing b- businesses available to us. Um, So I'd like to think that we're going to use the PubCo as intended, continue the brand, build the brands, add to the House of Brands and uh, and see where the industry goes.
0: Yeah. Uh, And, you know, last thing that I want to touch on here is the heritage of the BC BudCo. I know you guys fly your heritage flag high and proud. And for good reason, um, you know, it's a, it's a legacy marijuana name. Uh, so for folks out there, you know, that maybe aren't as familiar uh, with the brand itself and the name, can I can, kind of give us a, you know, a little bit of an understanding of the heritage and how that plays a role into the identity that you're carving out here for the BC Budco?
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, there it goes back now, you know, many many decades. But it, it's it's a it's a long story. I'll spare you as well. But I mean, BC has a a long heritage of of backcountry, you know, highly passionate growers. Um, even UBC, the, you know, the biggest university in British Columbia, is a, a gentleman there who unlocked the the genome back in 1996, and that sort of took the entire global industry and and really gapped it up. And things change after that with some specific strains that, that were making it way its way down to California and beyond. So it always had this sort of cachet of, you know, the people in the back hills of of Squamish or Princeton or Nelson, you know, up in the interior. It's just there's such a long-standing legacy, a hippie legacy, frankly, I believe, that goes back to the draft dodgers. A lot of them came up to the Kootenays of British Columbia, which is kind of the... The, call it the eastern, southeastern part, right over like Coeur Idaho type area. And that really became a mecca for hippies. And so cannabis was widely consumed and accepted. And a lot of people really nerded out and really went to town on how do we make the best in the world? What are some processes we can do? And so so BC was a pioneer in many, many ways. I've been all over the world. Cannabis from BC is instantly regarded as quality. That's just, that's something I've consistently seen everywhere I've stepped all over the planet, everyone has gone, oh, BC, good weed. So it has that little bit of a baked-in marketing, you could say. Mm-hmm. So yes, of course, we're leveraging that. But more importantly, you know, we've got Brian Taylor, for example, on our board. He's uh, currently a mayor of Grand Forks, a big, big town in BC, small town, but a, a big part of BC, second-term mayor. He founded the BC Marijuana Party in 1996 when I was a kid. Um, another one of our directors started the first chain of hydroponic stores in 1993, So we have people that are directly a part of and have lived and breathed, you know, and had passion for this plant and the properties of the plant and what it can do and how it can bring people together for combined, like, you know, literally a hundred years. So I'm I'm pretty proud of that. I come from the Fraser Valley, BC where, you know, whether I wanted it or not growing up as a kid, pot was everything. It was just for whatever reason, it was totally entrenched into the fabric. Like a lot of areas will have drinking. We had a lot of cannabis consumption like I bought a, a blog in 2004 or 2008. It went live cannabishealth.com, where I realized, wow, you can actually treat a, a heck of a lot of ailments using this one plant. And BC has always been really a kind of granola hippie. How do we sort of fight the man and big pharma and yeah. and stay close to, to home, so to speak, and, and do what we can naturally and, and do it consciously and do what's good for the environment and good for our body and mind. And so so I think there's a, a high level of uh, trust globally. I think everyone in BC again feels sort of somewhat connected. So it's important to us to really you know wear that, to own that. It's a huge responsibility. It's an awesome trademark, and I think it's a wicked brand that we first sat down years ago and said I could see this on a really cool garment or a hat or you know it could expand out on so many things. We could have a really cool store in Whistler, just the BC Budco Store with all of BC history. So. So I think we've really tied together a lot of the BC history. I, I was an MMAR patient in 04. That was one of the first federal licenses. So I got to meet all the doctors in Canada that were prescribing pot at the time. Got to speak all over the US with some of the biggest names. So we're guys that that really fucking care <laughs> about BC yeah. weed and about the industry, what it's done. You know, it's it's a big business in BC and and continuing to be, I think will expand to be a big business globally. Um, But for now, we're just, you know, focusing on what we know
0: and and trying to make better something that we're already very familiar with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to circle back to your conversation around the the, the dot com boom and, you know, ask Jeeves and Yahoo and all that. I want to leave, you know, our listeners and viewers with kind of just a quick little story here because I think it's relevant. But I was uh, I was a sophomore uh, in high school in about around 1998 and my economics teacher, I'll never forget it you know, we were going through, you know, talking about the, how the stock market works and all that. And he, he wrote up on the whiteboard, the word Google. And he said, if you're going to look for a company that, you know, you ever want to get behind, this is it. And I remember at the time, you know, Yahoo and Ask Jeeves were, were the big, you know, search yeah. engines. They were the ones that had the commercials. Google on was weird.
1: Google, yeah, but- Google was weird. Yeah. yeah, it
0: was. And so, you know, i I often find myself wondering, what happened to my <laughs> what happened to that teacher? Did he become a millionaire billionaire? who knows? Um, you know, but it, it was that foresight and being able to see something, you know, that I think other people at that time weren't recognizing because they were so blinded by, you know, the hype that Yahoo and s Jeeves, you know, was creating. But beneath that, there was actually a company that was doing things the right way that was adopting a mentality that was going to allow them to survive that, that bubble burst, so to speak. And so that's what I kind of look at. You know, when I look at companies, particularly here in the cannabis space, also in the psychedelic space, which I also focus a lot on. And I love the fact that you guys do take that marathon versus sprint mentality. Cause I do think that that wins out. And what I always tell people is, the objective is you want to make it to the finish line. You make it to the finish line, you take your winnings, your earnings, and then you put that into your, your next vehicle and you go run your next marathon. doesn't matter if you cross the marathon with a, a Lamborghini or a 2005 Toyota Camry. The objective is getting across that finish line. So it may not, you may not be the sexiest out there, but the bottom line is you're doing things the right way you're, you're on track to win that, that race, win that marathon. And I think that's important. That's certainly something I want to leave our viewers and listeners out there with. And Braden, you know, if there's any closing statements or things that you want to leave our viewers and listeners with, please go ahead. Cause I've really enjoyed this conversation by the way. Cool. And and likewise, and thank you, David,
1: I think we're the same age. That's, that's a really cool story. And I, I had one teacher say the same thing to me. Uh, actually the comment was back then was about Starbucks and caffeine. And then there was a, a war brewing. So they talked about, um, Lockheed Martin. It's a long story, but I I never forgot how they planted the seed for me when I was very young. I was like the stock market. My parents never talked about the stock market, right. so it's it's really cool. We had a teacher that exposed kids. I think that's awesome. Um, and I hope that teacher had a had his hope, his best place. I really so. do. Uh, I guess I'll just close by saying, you know, the the difference between Google. Obviously, I'm not going to compare us to the founders of that company, but they were young, hungry, talented, brilliant bordering on autistic, passionately, going down with the ship founders. So what happened with with cannabis, with big box cannabis, is a bunch of rounders and promoters raised a bunch of money, put it in a shell, found some doe-eyed, qualified CEO, jammed them in, gave them 300 grand a year, gave them a million options, and that CEO went out and said whatever they had to say. If the deal didn't work, everybody walked away. Nobody really paid the price. So I think... What I'm trying to say is that as an investor, I look for companies where the investor, where the founders are financially all in. They are down with the ship. They are going to let this thing destroy them, or they're going to spend their life building out the business. So, the there was an article years and years ago about the insider ownership of PubCo relative to performance, and it's not a shocker. Companies that have high insider bought stock, so founders that are that paid good money for their shares, have mm-hmm. I mean, a that chart is far more insulated and protected from those, those disappearing delisted rolled back messes that we saw in canvas. So that's, I guess my, my final point is, you know, we're, we're here, we're young, we're hungry. We're, we're, we've done it before. We're going to do it bigger this time. And it's not a group of guys that are, that are trying something, but rather a group of guys that are intentionally building something.
0: Yeah. And you got the experience to do it. So I commend you and I look forward to continuing to follow uh, the journey here for you guys if uh, any our, if any of our listeners or viewers out there have any questions uh as you're listening to this uh please leave them in the comments we'll get them over to Braden and uh hopefully you know get him back on here in the show but Braden I want to thank you again man this was great I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, appreciate the the time here thank you very much for having me David really appreciate yeah. it look forward to having you back soon so thanks again Bye. see you soon thank you